0: You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. I'm Calvin, and you're listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. This show is an experiment in civility, gathering people who disagree to sit down face-to-face and having them discuss their disagreements. Do we ever arrive at consensus? Sometimes. What's most important is we've got the conversation started. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. I am your host, Calvin Moore, and I'd like to say, per usual, I am here with my co-hosts, Kent Straith and Steve Phelps. But alas, I cannot. They uh, needed to take the night off. Uh, Steve is back in school majoring in Russian history or something like that. And he's got three essays that he needed to work on, uh, and uh, Kent said he doesn't like black people anymore, so he didn't want to be in the conversation. So I'm just, I'm just kidding. No, uh, uh, Dave, I, I told the guys, hey, you know what? Uh, this is kind of a, a conversation where I'm diving deep into, you know, issues within the black community. And if you guys want to take the night off, you can. And uh, Steve was grateful because he needs to do some work. And Kent was like, hey, I'm sure you got it handled, so he stayed home tonight. And I've got five guests, or four guests. We'll see who's on. Um, and I am grateful for all of you. So maybe it's best that I don't have my co-host tonight. But either way, I want to introduce each uh, each guest. Tonight, we're going to be uh, tackling a topic called, Has Christianity Failed Black People? Uh, and while this isn't a specifically religious uh, podcast, I am part of a group online, a Facebook group, private group, uh, where it's uh, black people who are committed to anti-racism work. There's a group that has black people and white people in it, and then the black people from that group also have a group where they can just kind of debrief and uh, let our hair down. And a question that was asked in this group was, what has uh, Christianity, you know, has Christianity done anything for, for black folk? And the answer was a resounding nothing. No, it has not done anything whatsoever for black people. And I was somewhat surprised as someone who, uh, Sunday was just a wrap growing up for me. That was Jesus' day. Uh, we had uh, church from morning until evening. Uh, we would uh, count how many times the pastor said, I'm almost done. And I believe the most amount of altar calls I've ever seen is 14. Four- <laughs> 14, uh, that's not an exaggeration. But the, the, the answer surprised me and uh, ended up having good conversations with people uh, out of it. I was the only one who said I thought that Christianity was for all people in all places and all times. But uh, there were a lot of people in the conversation who just felt that uh, Christianity uh, does nothing for black people specifically. So to that end, I wanted to have a conversation with uh, people who uh, – with black people who are in – uh doing the work of of religions within uh, within uh, Christianity itself. To that end, I've got uh, currently four people, possibly five here in a little bit, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce each one to the line. Uh, first, we have uh, Antipas L. Harris, the president of Jake's Divinity School. Uh, he's the president and dean of Jake's Divinity School and serves on the pastoral staff at the Potter's House in Dallas, Texas. He is an ordained minister, theological educator, and musician with degrees from LaGrange College, Candler School of Theology at at Emory University, Yale Divinity School, Boston University, and St. Thomas University. Antipas, thanks so much for being here.
1: It's a delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Also, you know... Maybe one day you're going to do something with your life. I think you need at least two more degrees before I'm going to respect you at all. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing too much. Seriously, calm down. Calm down. Uh, no, but it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, next up, we have Mr. Irwin L. Ince. Uh, he uh, serves as a pastor of Grace DC Presbyterian Church, and he's the director of the Grace DC Institute for Cross Cultural Mission, a church-based training and research entity dedicated to equipping current and future Christian leaders from uh, for uh, for cross cultural ministry. He is a graduate of City College of New York, Reformed Theological Seminary, and holds a DMin from Covenant Theological Seminary. Irwin, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here, brother.
0: No problem. Next up, we have Mr. Brandon Washington. Brandon Washington, uh, give me one sec. My notes are not, oh, there we are. Uh, Brandon grew up in Dallas, Texas, and studied political science at the University of North, North Texas. He is a graduate of Denver Seminary with a Master of Arts in Systematic Theology, and he is completing a second concentration of Master Master of Arts in Apologetics and Ethics. He has been married to his dearest friend, Sherry, for 16 years, and they have two beautiful children, Reese and Ellis. He is the preaching pastor of the Embassy Church in Northeast Denver. Brandon, thanks so much for being on the line.
3: Thanks for having me. I appreciate you giving me this chance.
0: No problem. And then last but not least, welcoming to the line, Drew G.I. Hart. Drew G.I. Hart is an activist, writer, and sought-after speaker on topics of racial justice, black theology, anabaptism, and white supremacy. He is an assistant professor of theology at Messiah College with a Ph.D. from Lutheran Theological Seminary. Hart and his wife and children live in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Drew, thanks so much for being here.
4: Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the invitation.
0: So let's uh let's dive right into questions then. Uh how do you respond to the statement that Christianity is the white man's religion? Uh in what ways do you believe American Christianity has been uh colonized? And uh say your name first when you speak, that way we, we get an idea of, of who's speaking and then go ahead and answer the question. You don't have to answer in any particular order either. So whoever wants to jump in first,
2: all right. I'll I'll jump in. We go <laughs> We deferring to each other. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Um, uh, this is Erwin. And, um, I, here's, here's how I first respond to that, uh, to that statement is that's a statement I used to make 30 years ago when I was, you know, when I was an undergrad at City College in New York in Harlem, I had come to the place of rejecting the Christian faith of my, of my youth, uh, growing up in the church, um, and, um, moved Heavily into the Afrocentric movement. This is in the late '80s, so I'm dating myself here. But um, but at that point in time, that those are words that were coming out of my mouth. That uh, Christianity is the white man's re- religion. Uh, it's been used as a tool to uh, to oppress people of African descent uh, in the United States of America. And uh, and I would um, I would attribute like the existence of the black church. I would, you know, there were a couple of books that were written by uh, Temple University, Professor uh, Malefe Asante, uh, Afrocentricity and Afrocentric centric idea, where he talks about the value of the black church only kind of as the holder of our, meaning people of African descent, the holder of our forms of religious worship until we came back to our senses. Hmm. Right. And so, so I was fully on board with that. But here's the limit, you know, so, so right in my own experience, um, that I, I was truncating the Christian faith to the United States of America. I was, I was truncating the Christian faith as if it began, uh, on the shores of, uh, this continent, you know, in the 1600s. Right. Um, r- not recognizing the ancient roots of a, of a faith that didn't come out of Europe. Right. Um, but, but flourished first among people of color. Right. And so, uh, and so that's my, right. That's my own trajectory. And so, yes, right. American Christianity, in a sense, has been colonized in, in this sense as it relates particularly to, um, to white Americans. Right. That's not the that's not what I would uh, say is um is is true of Christianity in America when it comes to uh, to black people. So I'll stop there and give others a chance
3: to. All try right, thanks. Uh, this is Brandon. Uh, I'm glad Urban went first because he covered all the bases for me. So I can just <laughs> everything I'm about to say is essentially amen to what he said uh, when I was going through high school, uh, I was a. I was a, an empathizer of the Nation of Islam. That's not, that wasn't a big deal. I'm of the age where probably every black boy couldn't say that. This, this, I grew up in the era of, of X-Clan, KRS-One, public enemy. So, you know, wearing X-shirts and caps was the norm. Uh, and m- many of us were adopting It's the reason I use empathizer, sympathizer, because we, many of us were adopting some of the language without understanding what we were doing. And uh, that carried me all the way through high school. I ended up leaving the nation of Islam because uh, not until my junior or senior year in high school did I find out about uh, Elijah Muhammad's extramarital uh, behavior and the children out of wedlock. And that resulted in me deciding it's best for me to transition out. And I, c- I became a believer in my sophomore year of college. And I'm among the people, the very few people I know of, who uh, experienced conversion because of apologetics. hmm um, and so I got I was introduced to questions or answers to questions regarding church history very early on. So the idea of fully identifying Christianity with an American cultural norm was not my was not how I was in, how I embraced the uh, embraced the the faith at all. The first book I read on that issue was written by uh, uh, Dr. Tony Evans and Dwight McKissick, entitled Roots Two. If anyone asks you who I am. And they do a pretty good job of walking through a history of Christianity that predates America. And uh, and even then, I didn't experience a full detailed reading of it. But as I went through seminary and I recognized things like how the, the schism between the East and the West occurred, and that resulted in much of the westernization of Christianity. I think I think the westernization of Christianity is a bigger deal than the Americanization of Christianity because if you recognize that the first full millennium of the church was eastern in its norm and most of the theologians whom we hold dear were continental africans this is this is a full 1500 years before the united states even existed so we when i was in seminary we read uh, augustine's uh, confessions and the cover of the book had him very Anglo in fact he was in a in a meadow and a butterfly was landing on his finger and the butterfly was white. And then you then you take church history at the same school and find out he's North African he he looks much more like, you know, uh um, Gaddafi than then uh than, you know Ben Affleck. So you so you have that understanding of what's going on. Then Tertullian who coined the term that we, that we the Trinity and and even codified much of his understanding. In fact, I would contend I know we have limitations here, so I'll, I'll be brief, but I, I would contend that the way the Trinity is understood could not have occurred in the West. It's an Eastern cultural norm because it's it, it, it values communal, uh, a communal group. So I, the idea of God being three and yet one was not a foreign idea in the West. I think that the struggle we have is there was the the Christianity was westernized and then weaponized. And so what we're responding to is not Christianity; it's the misappropriation of Christianity, okay. which was used as an oppressive. It was, it was used as an oppressive tool toward people who were brought to the states during, during the colonial era. Era, but I want to be careful that we do not throw a, an essential baby out with the bathwater. Just because it was misappropriated does not mean it is inappropriate.
4: Okay. Drew Antipas. Yeah. I'll just pick up right where Brandon left off. Um, I mean, in many ways that's partly where I was going to go. Um, though I always say two things, um, just out of respect for what has happened in the name of Christianity. I always say yes and no simultaneously. Um, that, um, is the white man's religion? Yes. And no, that there's no fact. I always start the same point, which is that, um, it was birthed at a, it was an Afro-Asiatic religion, right? Um, That, I mean, we're talking about Tertullian, Cyprian, Athanasius, Augustine, and we could go on and on and on um, in terms of these early theologians that played an enormous role in shaping the scape and landscape of, of the tradition moving forward. Um, And at the same time that we have to say, there's nothing indigenous to, to the West in Europe, and as relates to Christianity, it's not like Christianity was birthed there. There is a way in which uh, Christianity was manipulated, was diseased, was mangled in such a way that it was weaponized, right? Um, And especially in terms of at least Black folks' concerns starting in the 15th century in terms of um, beginning with slavery. Um, But certainly, as uh, was already mentioned, I mean, if you just look at the long haul of how Christendom develops, and then the splitting of East and West. Um, there's a devastating global implication to that as well. Um, so for me, it's less about American Christianity, though I do think the American story is what we care about, certainly in this United States, because of how it hits um, our lived experiences. But um, so, but so, my ultimate question then, in response to that, is um, is Howard Thurman's question that he begins with, "But Jesus and the Disinherited," which is, "Are we talking about?" Um, a weakness in Christianity, or a betrayal, right? Or, or is it is it a betrayal of the way of Jesus, or is it a weakness inherent to Christianity? I think that the that the real reality is that it's a betrayal, right? So it's very clear that it's not what's represented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, and so it's been weaponized. Um, and I think that's kind of how I enter into that conversation. But I do want to respect the fact that it has been used against our people, and so the fact that someone would call it a white man's religion there's a a kind of legitimacy, not in terms of its authenticity, but in terms of as a religious category, Christianity has been weaponized against black people.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: And Antipas, I think you've you've written a book called Is Christianity a White Man's Religion? So I'm interested in your answer on this as well.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. And I I agree with uh, everything that uh, my brothers, uh, Irvin, Drew, and Brandon have already said. I I would just uh, add that the question itself is pregnant with uh, implications. And I would be more interested in understanding why would one say that? Is this a theological question, a historical question, sociological question, emotional question? Is it a question as pertaining to your denomination? That Because sometimes people refer to Christianity, they're talking about a particular denomination, or they're talking about Catholicism or Protestantism. So sort of what exactly is it a political question? Um, and I think that, as Drew has said, you know the simple is it's it's yes and no uh depending on which one of those categories we're discussing uh certainly the historical uh nature of christianity in the west has been inundated with a variety it's been decorated with uh some very oppressive um, expressions um, by people who are in power so again uh is the question a question of the powerful or the powerless, because for the powerless who subscribe to Christianity, it was it was it was the road that brought them over. Uh, but uh, also from the standpoint of the powerful who use the faith to abuse the powerless, uh, it caused a, a whole faith in the question. Uh, and then one wonders, does the subscription to the faith define the faith? Or can the faith stand independent of the people who claim it? Uh, frankly, in a world and a history that has uh, you know, been infatuated with power and money, uh, you, you appeal to uh, a higher power uh, to affirm or to sanction the power or to affirm the power that you desire to have, whether it's race or gender. Right. Uh, if I go find if I believe if I know you believe scripture is authoritative, I go look for a scripture. Uh, to prove that I'm right so that you will believe it <laughs> so uh, so I think this is some of the things that happen then the other thing is and drew mentioned on uh, the 15th century with uh, afonso afonso v and the pope at the time who had that um, in Portugal when Portugal thought it was going to be the next superpower and um, the church leaders argued that slavery served as a natural de- Deterrent and Christianized influence of barba- barbarous behavior among the pagans. So now you have to create a world where you have to decide these folks are the pagans and these folks are the righteous, and the righteous has to now treat the people we have decided to be pagans uh, barbaric, and then you use scripture to, to sanction that. And it's interesting how over the years that has been. Um, what developed the American experiment. And uh, one last thing I'll say, and that is that colonization and racism are two sides of the same coin. And the American experiment was built on, was built with both sides of the coin. So part of what people have a hard time untangling is being patriotic on the one hand, and being critical of a racist experiment on the other hand. And um, when Christianity is sort of um, the fabric that weaved all that together, it's hard to, to really say that Christianity is anything else other than that, which the powerful use to oppress the powerless.
0: For me, uh, I'll, I'll jump in on this conversation because it's got import for me as well. Um, it's, Brandon, I kind of echo some of the things that you've, you've done the, the whole apologetics route. You know, like, I fell in love with, uh, evidence that demands a verdict, right? You know, I just, I was eating, eating that stuff up. And then, uh, Josh McDowell's son ended up being my professor out at Biola University when I went through their apologetics program. Um, so questions for me around religion didn't ever, until I got older, didn't really play around the edges of race. It just didn't. The questions I wanted to know, like, are miracles possible? Uh, you know, Did Jesus rise on the third day? The historicity of the resurrection? Those are the kinds of questions that I was uh, dealing with. And then I ended up getting into Biola University. And, and God bless them. Lots of well-meaning, nice people. But lots of things were going on in the world. And the questions being asked at that point – weren't necessarily the questions that the program was answering anymore like people weren't necessarily asking are miracles possible in the black community they're like uh why why would my brother get shot you know what why is this guy railroaded in jail like the the questions were very different and when i brought those up there was a lot of pushback like why are you asking those questions that's not that's not what we need to be focusing on and it's it's still interesting that's the internal stuff, but then when I deal with people saying, you know, hey, Christianity is a white man's religion, that is a quintessentially black thing to say. If I talk to black people, if I talk to white people about their, uh, their roadblocks to the faith, they don't say, well, you know, Calvin, Christianity is a white man's religion. They don't say that. It's black people who are saying that and we're seeing an exodus. Uh, and so what I'm running into though is, There seems to be a lack of understanding as to what the function of religion is in the first place. Regardless of what faith you hold on to, what does religion do? And I think people are setting up, uh, I think C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, people tend to set up a fourth grade version of Christianity, make that the object of their attack, knock that over, and they say, I won. See, this is not functional. It's broken. Uh, It's easily defeated. And I, I think that's part of what is being dealt with when the question pops up in the first place. Well, Christianity is a white man's religion. That's not to, to downplay anything that's been said. It has definitely been weaponized. But even people outside the faith uh, like uh, Frederick Douglass, he was able to say, hey, look, I look at this and I can definitely differentiate, you know, not playing on the team, I can differentiate between the Christianity of Jesus and the Christianity of chattel slavery. And one is Christianity and one is not. So, uh just uh, my my two cents on that, but I want I want to jump in uh, to the next question. So and I and I said this a little bit earlier, Christianity presents itself as being a religion for all people in all places and all times. You know, it is true for yeah, you know, it was it was true uh, when Jesus was with the disciples, it was true in 1620, it was true during the civil rights movement, it is true today and all, for all people in all places all times. That's how Christianity presents itself. Um, But how is Christianity specifically for black people? Because the the claim has been made is not for black people. It could be for white people. They can use it, but it's not for us. How would you all say that Christianity is specifically for black people?
1: Can I I go back to uh, something you said, um, Calvin, about um, uh, the question is really resonates in the black community. That is true. Uh, the verbatim of the question, Uh, but the question as a metaphor is present in other communities as well, uh, because there's an exodus across the board, and a lot of the concerns are similar as it relates to the ways in which um, at least some expressions of Christianity um, have ignored the social dynamics or the implications, um, the socio-theological conversations Mm -hmm. around the faith, Um, Where does the faith hit the road? Uh, Is it just this sort of pie in the sky um, or or does it, you know, this pragma, the pragmatic expressions of the faith are called into question. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have black uh, young people who are going to like Nation of Islam, black Hebrew Israelites, Mm -hmm. expanded consciousness. But you have white kids who are going to Wiccans and uh, witches and some expanded consciousness and signs of consciousness. And there is a connection, right? In way, it's a religious pandemic, if you will, where they are more spiritual, but they don't want to subscribe to religion mm-hmm. because and they are making the difference between the two by suggesting that religion is is um man-made, if you will, a way of, of holding people hostage to a set of beliefs that don't really speak to the questions that people have. So I I, I just wanted to kind of put that in there. Um
0: Anyway. No, no, no! It's, it, it's great. I, I think uh, it still begs the the question of people not understanding the the function of religion in the first place. You hear a lot of um, spiritual but not religious that 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 line, and you know one of the major functions of religion is social cohesion, right? And if I'm just out here doing things on my own, there's no social cohesion there at all. You know, it might make me feel good, but uh, but I, I, to your point, though, I think that you are right. This question is played out differently in in various communities, which is why I was specific when I said when I talked to white people, I've never heard a white person ever say it's a white man's religion. They have different argument. I was just saying within the black community, this is a very specific argument that uh, that I hear, which is why I wanted to you know play around the edges of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, to that end, I mean, do you think? I mean, in, in what ways is Christianity specifically for for black people?
2: So let me um, let me reply this way. I think um, first to be uh, maybe more specific, um, are we talking about black people in the United States yeah, of America. Yeah,
0: we're, we're talking yeah specifically within right. our context.
2: Um, yes, and uh, and there's there are more answers in this, um, or more ways to respond than uh, than than what I'm about to say. Uh, I certainly affirm that. The Christian faith is for sure uh, a religion for all people in all places at all times. Now, so historically, this is what comes to mind. A, um, uh, early 1900s, um, uh, James Weldon Johnson, who uh, uh, wrote um, Lift Every Voice and Sing, along with his brother, they put together a two-volume work called The Book's of the American Negro spirituals, where they compiled all of the uh, the Negro spirituals and set it to music in his two-volume hymnal. And uh, James Weldon Johnson wrote the introduction to this um, to this hymnal. And uh, in the introduction, he has a poem called to the, the Black and Unknown Bards, where it's an ode to the faith of the composers of the spirituals. And, um, and he he says, you know, how did the spirituals come to be? Not in the poem, but in the introduction. How did the spirituals come to be? And he and he says that there was for these enslaved um, black people the precise religion found for his condition, right? Um, that spoke a word of of uh, of liberation, of liberty, of, of, of justice, right? Of hope, right? That, that, that birthed a whole theology of song, in song, of perseverance, right? Um, through, uh, through trials. And so, right, there's, there's more to say than that, but it's at least that, right? That we have, that in the history of Blacks in this country, Um, we've seen the Christian faith uh, be a source of great strength and perseverance uh, and even push against um, oppression and injustice uh, and enslavement. Uh,
3: So I, I can do it this way. The... Uh, so it's we're we're recording this on a Sunday evening. It's much more evening for the rest of you than me because I'm farther <laughs> west uh, than everyone else. And so I, I'm still I'm still not far removed from the sermon I preached this morning. We're in the we actually are recognizing Advent, and it's not the way what a lot of people typically do it. Um, and so this morning's text was Isaiah nine, and then we transitioned from there to, to Isaiah sixty one verses one and two. Then I use that as a springboard to jump into Luke 4, where Christ walks into the synagogue and he quotes Isaiah 61 and cites himself as the one referenced in Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61, the the anointed one is going to show up and he's going to bring wholeness. The one who's identified as Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9 is showing up in Isaiah 61 and identifying himself as the fulfillment of that one who who is the prince of peace and then Jesus says I'm the in your hearing you this uh this prophecy has been fulfilled and you'll notice in that as he identifies the fruits that come from that anointed one he doesn't mention and I will down a cross and resurrect and because of that you will go to heaven it's a he makes reference to quite a bit of temporal blessedness the blind will see the lame will walk the 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 captives will be set free um the persecuted will experience deliverance. It's temporal blessedness. And I, if I were to preach that same message in a dominant culture church, I think everyone in the room, because it's in the text, a Bible-believing church, because it's in the text, they will potentially affirm what I'm saying there. But we all have to remember that we have experientially formed hermeneutical lenses. So the way we apply those truths may not be the same. We will all concede them, but the application of them will not be the same. So the idea of injustice will look one way to one collective group or individual and look at it in an entirely different way. So the idea of being marginalized is something that is innate to the African American, Christian or evangelical cultural context because of the reality of the black church came out of a marginalized uh, setting, specifically slavery. I think that uh, Carl Ellis handled that very well in uh, Free at Last. I think he handled that masterfully. And so I, I think that that reality is something that we should keep in mind. We're taking the same biblical ideas and we have a hermeneutical lens that applies them in a specific way. Our lens does not create a reality, but the experiences the experiences gave us a lens to see a reality that was always there. And it may be foreign to some of our dominant cultural siblings. So just personalizing this, I had given very little attention to critical race theory until I was accused of being a critical race theorist. (sighs) Had given very little. I had heard of it. had. I'm an undergrad in poli sci, so I read Karl Marx and that kind of thing, but I had to give very little attention to it. But I was saying things publicly that, uh, that resulted in people accusing me of being a critical race theorist. So I had to check this so I can be sure that people are properly accusing me of something. And it turns out that while I'm not a critical race theorist, I need to say that on every public platform I can, I'm not a critical race theorist. I share their hermeneutic, their historical hermeneutic. So when I look at history, I see the same things they see. I don't see that slavery simply ended after 1865. I recognize that that a post-Reconstruction Jim Crow and Great Compromise occurs after that. I recognize that we needed to have a Civil Rights Act, three Civil Rights Acts in the 60s, because the 1954 Board, Brown versus Board decision did not make the change that everyone thinks. I have friends who think that they can point to a date on a timeline and change occurred. But as someone who has studied this with my hermeneutical lens from a black perspective, I recognize that that's an oversimplification of history. So when I read that the anointed one brings things like wholeness, shalom, justice, and recovery for those who are marginalized, I apply it to that history as I see it through that lens, and it results in a different application, a legitimate and different application of the historic Christian faith. And in that regard, it is essential to our experience. We're going to get into the, the you, you mentioned the context in which some of these questions, mm-hmm. out of which some of these questions come, and a young lady posted a, a, a statement to which you want to respond. And, and when we get there, one of the things I want to point out is the significance of the black church to the civil rights movement. Okay. When, you, whenever someone downplays the role that the church has had in the well-being of people, of black people, I think that they're they're being ahistorical and they're not recognizing the role the sacrificial to the point of death many of them role that that Christian leaders had during the civil rights era in our country and all they came out of their of their application of the gospel as it was applied through their hermeneutical lens the way they read the world was a result of the result in the, their specific and contextualized application of the gospel message.
0: Oh, so yeah. So, uh, should know I'm getting pastors on, this is gonna be some long answers. I loved it. I love all of them. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do this for all y'all, but that was good stuff. Very, very good stuff. Brandon. I love it. Uh, yeah. Drew Antipas. Yeah, anybody? this is
4: Drew. So, um, I just wanted to pick up actually right where Brandon, cause he made me think of, I heard uh, CT Vivian, um, when he was still living. I remember him saying, this was probably like 10 years ago, I heard him speaking. He said that the civil rights movement, if you think about it, think of it as a clash of two Christianities. Um, Hmm. And I just thought that that was really powerful. um, And maybe that kind of picks up with what Brandon was just getting at. Um, And so I think that's one way of getting into the conversation in terms of what it's for. If you actually look at the way in which um, there are clearly liberative, empowering um, forms of of lived Christianity in the black tradition that have actually um, fought for us, uh, empowered us, kept us together, created spaces for giving, receiving, sharing love, right? All of those things um, we see manifested. But I would also, and maybe this is something that you could argue, I guess on a hermeneutical level can't be proven, but I would go ahead and argue and say that um, as quickly as we say that Christianity is universal, we also have to say that it is Particular, and that it doesn't ask the same thing of everybody, right? Um, it's that every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain made low, and and so it has very different implications for different folks depending on the social location in which we live in, right? Um, and so that's precisely, I mean, it's the uh, the God of Israel is not neutral as it relates to questions around injustice and oppression. Um, this God takes sides. This God is invested in the the well-being of those who are most vulnerable and oppressed within society. And so um, if we're going to ask the question, you "No, know, is God for Black people, um, I'd say yes to the degree that God identifies with, struggles in solidarity with, and is liberating Black people, right? Um, then I would say then there is a unique way in which which uh, Christianity is for Black people and all oppressed people and all vulnerable people, even at the same time that I would say that God is desiring to usher all of creation into shalom, right, and has a place for everybody to respond and to participate, Um, it is also particular. And so that would, I guess, be, um, my answer would be both the different kind of Christianities, but also then, what I would say is what I see as the hearts, the interpretation of it is um, the God of Israel in, incarnated in the person of Jesus Christ that takes sides with those who are oppressed. Antipas. Oh, he's
1: powerful. It's like many sermons. That's powerful. This is, like <laughs> <laughs> is Antipas. Um, yeah. So the question about, uh, you know, Christianity and, and black people, I, I think it was Drew said earlier that Christianity or the, the whole Bible was born out of an Afro-Asiatic context and a bishop asked me once, um, was Obed-Edom black? And I, my response to him was, well, the problem is in the question, if I understand the question, because the question seems to imply that everybody else is white. And you probably got that from the movies. Uh, it's like Moses married a black woman. Well, that seems to suggest that Moses was white. Uh, so, and you probably got that, that visual from the, the movies that was intended to paint um, the, the the characters in the Bible that were noble and and good will and God's people as white, and then you have a few black people like the who were bad, like the Egyptians. You know, they're from Africa, and you know you got uh, Simon of Karini, You know, he was a slave, so the slave carried the cross of Christ. So you have this sort of. Um, this racist um, um, meta narrative, the framing of the racist meta narrative that is part of what subjugated um, the American experiment uh, to white being right and black step back kind of a thing. Black is bad, black people are slaves. Um, so, this sort of structuring of the biblical, the whole biblical narrative uh, is part of what has plagued, I think. Uh, some Black preaching, quite frankly. Uh, you talked about critical race theory. Uh, part of critical race theory is that Black people also can be racist, because when you buy into an ideological framework that uh, that seems to privilege the white ways of thinking over the Black ways of thinking, a Black person then could, um, could benefit from a system that oppresses our own people. And we see that even with some people who are elected and others who, you know, you, you, you just do the right thing, boy, and you won't be in trouble. Well, it's this framework that has been set forth. So when I told him, I said, the, the problem is in the question because you're suggesting that everybody else is white when probably 95 percent of the Bible are people of color. This whole idea of a world that is uh, colonized, um, where you have Africa that is distinct from the Middle East, that came later in that in early Afro-Asian context is much more fluid. And the separation between people had more to do with nations than um, than race. So was Obed-Edom black? Probably. And everybody else around in the text probably were black. And uh, Moses was a man of color, just like uh, uh, the Ethiopian the woman he married was black. So she was just from Ethiopia. And that had nothing to do with Europe versus Ethiopia. So the framing of the text has given way to this assumption that um, that the Bible is full of whiteness that oppresses black people, and that is not true.
0: Yeah, I think uh, hermeneutical imagination has been stunted by that. Uh, there's a book. I think it's from University. Yeah, it is from University. Uh, Reading While Black. If you guys don't have it, get it. It's excellent. Um, yep. But just talking about the. The ways that black people have interpreted scripture uh, while in their specific locations has still been stunted by the fact that they're reading it through a a very majority culture in America view. And so this book looking at hermeneutics through the lens of the black community as an exercise in hope I think is absolutely um, in, integral and needed – but we're stunted in many ways because it's not something that's been done. I mean, most of the books on hermeneutics, honestly, and most of the classes that are taught on hermeneutics uh, that I've been in have been taught by people who don't look like me. Uh, and a lot of things are assumed from that majority culture. This is what, uh, you know, this is how this looks. And like you said, uh, the, the, the movies, right? hey, you know, Charlton Heston, you know, you know, splitting, you know, splitting the Red Sea, even uh, even the Prince of Egypt movie where they're all they're all white in that as well. I mean, I mean, that's what Hollywood does. I mean, Prince of Persia, I think it was Jake Gyllenhaal who played Prince of Persia. I'm like, how is this happening? <laughs> I don't know how that happened. But um,
2: can I, I can I can I? Uh, I know. Yeah. Know. No, go ahead. Go right ahead. <laughs> but I just want to affirm something here because you brought up um, reading about Law Black, Esau McCauley's book. And it relates to something that Brandon uh, said earlier and, and Drew as well. Brandon started talking about the lenses that we wear, right? That are experiential lenses that we bring to the scriptures, to the Christian faith. And then Drew's point about particularization, right? Engaging in particular realities. And I just, right? So, and into uh, uh, Antipas's point, about even black people can em- embrace a uh, an anti-black or <laughs> right uh, narrative. Uh, I remember I was I was um, promoting the book uh, before it came out on my social media page and just said, hey, this is going to be outstanding. Need to read it. And I was having a, a conversation. Uh, I usually don't get involved in social media back and forth conversations, but this was a a brother that I knew, a fellow Christian African American brother. And and he was just pushing back on the whole idea of the title "Reading While Black," mm-hmm. and and start trying, you know, that I don't want to just read read while while black, and that there is some just um, almost, and this is I want to be generous, but but almost like a disembodied engagement of the scriptures, like I I can come to it at at some neutral frame work that doesn't involve my actual personhood and experiences of the people to whom I'm a part. Right. And it's just impossible. Right. So anyway, I, I want to, I'll stop there. But no, I, I,
0: I think that's, that's, that's good. Um, I want to ask an off script question here just cause it's been brought up a few times, Brandon, specifically by you. Uh, and I think other people have uh, talked about critical race theory as well. I actually just finished reading a textbook, uh, don't ask me why I read a textbook, but I read a textbook, uh, Introduction to Critical Race Theory, because I was hearing lots of people talk about it, and I was like, yeah, I want to know what it is. Like you, Brandon, I've been accused of, uh, you know, being a critical race theorist, and I was like, okay, well, I don't know what that is, so let's see if I am, and uh, I'm probably more so than than you are on that. Uh, I'm probably closer to actually being a critical race theory uh, theorist, but. I'm reading this text. I'm like, this is this is a legal text. It, it's for lawyers. This is where it sprang from. I was like, huh. But my question around it is, how do you all feel about the recent news that the Southern Baptist Convention released a statement, uh, a resolution, so to speak? Uh, against it, hey, we resolve that you know the Bible is a, a highest law of the land for Christians. Obviously, that makes sense. Uh, and to that end, critical race theory is basically BS, and you should not be involved in it. And I, I'd love to know what your what your thoughts are on that because it almost seems like the the most majority culture church that there is in America is pitting itself against uh, voices within the specifically the black church, who are taking, gleaning what they can from critical race theory, making it subservient to scripture, but saying this, this still matters. This is very located. It talks about locatedness in lots of other spheres, whether it be law, economics, history, theology. Uh, so what are your thoughts on an entire denomination coming out and essentially denouncing Something that Black theologians are saying this is useful.
3: Well, I my issue—I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, please. Uh, this is—he's in my—he's on my—he's in my wheelhouse right now. I've been on the soapbox for a <laughs> while, so. Um, but I, my issue with them denouncing it was not was not the public statement itself. It's the it's the uh, lack of nuance. It was the sweeping manner in which it was, uh, in which it was rejected. And so I have two concerns here. One is their statement does not lend itself to the possibility that systemic racism is a real thing. That's one concern I had with it. But the bigger thing is, and I think I noticed that when we went through the bios, everyone has had a seminary experience to varying degrees. Um, Antipas is collecting degrees like (laughs) <laughs> baseball cards. Okay, so the and and but here's what I know from my own seminary experience. When I was in school, I had to be bicultural, and I also had to be bi-hermeneutical. So, I had to I had to often translate what I was being taught to a into a language and application that would be relevant to the community where I pastor. And no one else in the class, because I I attended a seminary that I love. I now serve on its board, okay? But I attended a seminary where where it was often the case that I was the black student in a classroom. And everyone in the room had a same cultural context, and they had had shared hermeneutical lenses. And I would have to translate the content to make it relevant for my context. And when I brought that up later, because when you become a board member, you can start to say stuff out loud and uh, and when i brought it up later many of the people who were both classmates and professors did not realize that they were doing that and i think that southern seminary or the, the southern baptist convention in general doesn't realize that they have a hermeneutical lens they have that they have a historical perspective that they're interpreting history from a specific cultural angle they think no, no the bible is the ultimate authority and 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 saying that presumes that your, that your biblical hermeneutic can be universalized. But as has come up already, Erwin touched on this, and I think Drew touched on this as well, that that context is essential to how one applies the precepts of scripture. And the diverse hermeneutical lenses are necessary to have a comprehensive, a well-rounded view on how you're going to apply that. So my question to them would be, how many actual scholars of color who exist outside of their hermeneutical cultural norm spoken to that decision? How many, how many were present? Who did they consult on that decision? Because denying that you have a hermeneutic or universalizing your hermeneutic is a very arrogant thing to do. And it's a disservice to anyone who falls outside of that hermeneutical perspective. Kids, this is very important Your hermeneutic does not create a reality, but it allows you to see a reality that's already there and to dismiss the fact that you may have cultural, contextual, societal blind spots as you're applying scripture is an act of oppression, whether you realize it or not. That's one of the things that the first question we had regarding whether or not it's it's a white man's religion. It harkens back to that cultural norm, that reality. When people ask that question, I think they're asking me, are, are, the, are people who read and apply the Bible able to appreciate that there are realities that are outside of their purview and the Bible needs to be applied to those? The inability to recognize you may have those blind spots is a disservice to everyone involved. So let me, let me distill that real quick. What you're saying is that the Southern Baptist Convention is engaging in oppression. I, I I did I did not deliberately did not boil it down to that sentence. It's my show. I could say it. I got nothing on the line. I yeah,
0: know. <laughs> you
3: have done it. I, I want to. Be, I, I do want to qualify it with one thing though, and it, it could be that many of them are doing so unwittingly. There was a time when I would have I would have argued that your responsibility while you're in seminary is to develop the sound hermeneutic and develop the credible exegetical techniques and that's back that was at a time when i thought that there was such a thing as the hermeneutic
0: well i i I think you make a good point in that it's bias is often unconscious we're talking about blind spots right that car came out of nowhere right um but I, i think the the problem is the doubling down that you see when it is brought to your attention this is no longer a blind spot this is what you're engaging in here's how you're engaging in it point point a point b point c point d making the case you guys are engaging in oppression by doing these things right you're assuming this that and the other and then still saying no (laughs) no that is not what we're doing and just doubling down on the on the blindness so to speak what are your i mean that's what's happening at this point is they are being confronted heavily by many corners of christendom and still doubling down and saying, oh, this is this is where we stand and I can I can stand nowhere else.
4: Anybody this else? Have Drew thoughts on this? Yeah, Drew, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, just real quick. I don't have a lot to say. Um, And maybe my you can push back so I can push back if I'm too unnuanced, maybe because of my distance to the Southern Baptist denomination. But I feel like, you know, we're talking about the most traditionally white supremacist denomination in the United States. Um, so for me it's like of course they're going to I don't know. I guess that's I, for me, th- like what else would I expect from the, the folks that have at every stage of our history have pushed back against every effort towards racial justice and equality and equity and I mean that's just what they've done. So I mean, I don't know if I'm too much un- someone could I think, nuanced, I but, think too- but that's of course, that's the only thing that I can think of.
0: I think to that end in, in the church when the church calls people, the church calls people out on things. I mean, you see Paul writing a letter, I think to, to Corinth. Hey, there's a guy shacking up with his own mom. But Expe- Do I really need to talk about this? Expel this guy. Did you really need me to write this letter? to tell- I love Paul's sarcasm, by the way. It's like, do I need to be there to tell you this? I mean, get, get rid of this guy. Expel, him, uh, expel the immoral brother. Right? So uh, we call an ace and ace, a spade, a spade. We, we call sin to account. And, I think, Drew, to your point, what the Southern Baptist Convention has done, I think they they fought against a resolution to condemn white supremacy a few years ago. I'm like, this is a soft lob across the plate, people. That's not that hard to do. Why aren't you willing to do it? So if we're willing to call something sin, why aren't we willing to call it sin? And, Brandon, is it necessarily unconscious? Is it, is it unconscious all the time when people are doing these kinds of things? if you have a pattern of doing these things over and over and over again, and you have a pattern of being called out and saying, yeah, and is it unconscious?
3: I believe it's no longer unconscious. I believe that having been called out on it, uh, make, now holds us accountable, but, but you, you've experienced this before when, when you're a part of an organization and a ball starts rolling and you were a part of the ball, initiating its motion mm-hmm. once you're called out it's it's like it's it's i don't want to i don't want to be guilty of quoting the wire too many times but <laughs> slim charles said we are got to fight on this lie we got to, we're gonna go to war on this lie and i think that that's the situation they're in now once some of the nuanced considerations were brought to their attention the ball was rolling too fast for anyone who was considerate enough to have second thoughts it was too late for them to say anything
0: Okay. Well, we we have talked about uh, the locatedness of of peoples, right? You know, the the Bible is probably going to be read differently in the Black community uh, than it is in the Asian community, than it is in the you know Hispanic community, and than it is in the White community. And so, to that end, does does the Black church occupy a a different role in Black neighborhoods than it does in White neighborhoods? And if so, how?
1: Church or does the black church? Can you explain the question again? Say it again. Does the black church hold a different role in the black community than the white community? Or does the church in the black community or the white community?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll just say the church in general. Does the church in a black community occupy a different space than the church in, in the white community?
1: For me, I think That that the question is a broad question, right? Yes, it's very broad. All black people and all black communities are the same. And, you know, there is so much diversity there, um, both on the white and the black side. But if we're talking just sort of historically uh, speaking, I think that it has in some way. And Niebuhr wrote a book, A Moral Man in Moral Society, where he talks about uh, how one how collective uh, sins are worse than individual ones, but the one, the part hmm. that I want to point out here is that I think what he's getting at is that you can benefit from a society that oppresses other people, and I think that in any case where black or white, uh, where faith becomes like a country club, and we just love our Jesus and we romanticize our faith while we like the Levite and the priest who passed by the man stricken, beaten, and left half dead on the road to Jericho, we uh, we then embody a different expression of the faith than people who need the every hour we need it. So um, I think that to say that is black and white is a historical reality. But you know, I guess I'm too far into ministry now that I see it where even some black churches uh, don't serve this present age a calling to fulfill. So. I hesitate to, to, to socialize the problem as a black and white thing. Now, but part of what we're getting at with is Christianity, white man's religion. Part of the millennial critique is that even black churches have um, taken upon themselves a white Jesus. So mm-hmm. it's not a critique on white churches necessarily. They're saying even the black churches really worshiping a white Jesus because they're disconnected as well.
0: Okay. It's a very that's a very good distinction there. Anybody else? I
3: think I think that this is Brandon. I think that um and I'll try to keep this one short. The I think the problem is uh we are we are as the church, I like I like that Antipas kind of us brought specified the question to the church in general, not just the black church. In addition to the white Jesus thing, I think we are preaching a truncated gospel. I think we're treating the gospel as a rescue mission. The world is the, the a sinking ship, and our job is to get as many people saved as possible before, it's, before it sinks. So the temporal benefits of the gospel get lost in that conversation. And people think that when you go to suburbs and you've arrived at a certain station of life, you don't have temporal brokenness in need a resolution that is brought only by the gospel. So in the suburbs, we're just saying, you know what, you're you're fine. You're living in your in your in your suburban community. You have this large house and you have 2.5 cars and you have your 2.7 children and everything's good, but you're gonna go to hell. So we're gonna preach a gospel that gets you saved and you can enjoy the rest of this good life until salvation comes. But we don't preach a message that deals with the fact that they're dealing with uh that they're wrestling with uh, meth addiction in their homes among their children and the brokenness that the gospel can address in in that context. We're much more aware of that in many black communities. So I think the big mistake we've we've made is we've reduced the gospel to Jesus died so I can go to heaven. But if we had a much more comprehensive view of what happened on the cross and at the resurrection, then our approach to both of the communities would look much more similar than they do now.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah. Can I? Yep. Chime in here. I want to affirm what uh, Brandon just said, particularly uh, because here's what comes to my mind. Just uh, on this issue of role, I think there's there's a there's a similar calling in this regard uh, to people who uh, to, who who are part of the Christian faith and to churches in particular places. And I get this. You know, I'm taking this from uh, from Carl Ellis. Was a friend, and his book "Free at Last" was mentioned earlier. But I heard him say this almost twenty years ago now, and he still says it: is in the the need to identify and engage the core cultural concerns of the people, right? The core cultural concerns of the people you are called to like literally serve, right? Where the church is, right? And so this is actually something that's true. Wherever the church exists, this is also a part of that particularizing question. What are the animating issues that are affecting the real embodied lives of the people in this place are questions that those who belong to Jesus Christ need to be asking and engaging as as the church, right? And so right part of the part of the issue. And challenge is, you know, for uh, the majority white context to, you know, point, right, a lot of those questions are not actually even asked uh, because there's such an overemphasis on an individualistic faith, right? Um, me getting my ticket to heaven punched, me being all right, right, and that the gospel extends only to that, right? And it doesn't touch the real life. and so 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 there's all, even a disservice in many contexts, right if you're talking about majority white culture context of not asking those questions and and being even blind to things that ought to be core cultural concerns for you know for that place and that people in that community. right And so so these are animating questions that wherever the church is, Need to be asked and be pursued, knowing that right there's a reason why the right the the the, the scriptures uh, lead us into a place of glory in the description of a new heavens and new earth. Mm-hmm. We're never going to arrive <laughs> un, until that takes place, but we will always be pressing into it by faith. Right? That's a, that's that's part of the calling uh, for the church.
4: And I'll just pick up where um, Antipas, he made a really good point in terms of the complexity of the Black church right now. And I, I was just thinking about like historically, because um, I would say like the gift that the Black church has provided in the United States context would be the Black prophetic tradition. But if we're honest, many there are many Black churches and Black lots of Black faith that does not exist within that tradition at all in any form or capacity. But I do think that that is something um that needs to be named in the conversation of thinking about the role that churches play, certainly in the United States, and the kind of faith collective uh, faith that has been modeled and embodied on the ground, um, that there's this prophetic tradition, which goes contrary to the way that, I'd say, mainstream Christianity, in the West and particularly in the United States has turned Jesus into a mascot for the status quo. Right. I mean, it's a very different kind of tradition, not a chaplain for the empire, right. Rather than this kind of prophetic tradition that is able to unveil um, the evils, the injustices, the uh, hypocrisies um, in the land.
0: So one of the things I said earlier, uh, I brought up Frederick Douglass uh, talking about, and then some of you have mentioned as well, Hey, you know, this is kind of a, This is true Christianity, true biblically faithful Christianity and then there's this kind of colonized American Christianity that's not really Christianity. Uh, And uh, I brought up Frederick Douglass saying, hey, look, here's the Christianity of Christ and then there's, there's not. And I think during the 90s, early 2000s, there was a huge push, especially within maybe reform circles of figuring out who's in and who's out. Who's in, who's out. Who's Christian? Who's not Christian? Who who's saved? Who's not saved? And I joked about the fourteen uh, altar calls. It was really probably about ten, and that's not a joke. Um, but you know, we we need to get as many people you know off the sinking ship into uh, into spaceship Jesus as quickly as as possible. But when we're having these conversations, well, they weren't Christians is generally a, a response given by people. When they don't want to deal with the darker side of organized Christianity, especially when it comes to uh, American chattel slavery, right? Okay, those slave slave owners, they weren't really Christians, right? America is ostensibly a Christian nation. It's founded by the founding fathers and they're all Christian people. A lot of them own slaves though. So you get bogged down in this area. So what if people who held slaves – or agreed with slavery, or fought for the continued suppression of black people, actually were Christians, or today are Christians. How do you respond to that? To Christians continuing to perpetuate today white supremacy, and Christians in the past perpetuating white supremacy. How do you you deal with that? Because it's very easy to just dismiss and say they weren't Christians. Moving on rather than dealing with the fact that Christians did some pretty terrible, terrible things. Because if if the scandal of grace is true,
1: (laughs) you know, I think that part of it is that uh, we know in part, we prophesy in part, right? Mm -hmm. None of us are particularly um, perfected in our theological vision. That said, I think there are some benchmarks, some historical benchmarks. If you have people who continue to perpetuate the same ideological frameworks that oppressed people in the past, that we all can look to to say that this was wrong, yet they continue to do those things. There's a certain arrogance about that sinful behavior and that anti-Christian um um way of thinking and we were talking about you know traditions that would you know abruptly uh, condemn critical race theory uh the same traditions that were built upon white supremacy there is no there is no critical reflection within their own historical framework at that point it moves beyond the judgmental framework of, you know, I know in part, I prophesy in part, I may be wrong in a lot of things, but if you can look at your own historical record and see that there are extreme diabolical behavior in the name of Jesus, and you just jump out there and keep being arrogant, you know, you you can't just say that people historically, like Frederick Douglass said, you know, it was two different Christianities. I, I, for the sake of the gospel, I would say that there are two different Christianities today.
3: Okay.
4: Yeah, this is Drew here, and I would absolutely agree. And I think some of the question is, um, at least for me, out of the traditions that have shaped me, I would want to ask, you know, how are we defining Christianity? Um, because there are very different ways that Christianity is defined. And I think that if you take mainstream Christian definitions of what it means to be a Christian for granted as the starting points, then in some ways it actually is very hard to call someone's Christianity out because you say a prayer or accept Jesus into your heart and you have a genuine experience of feelings in the inside. Okay. But, but if, is it a way of life? Is it a practice? Like, I, I guess I'm influenced by both, uh, I'd say the prophetic side of the Black church, but also the radical discipleship wing of the Anabaptist tradition, like two Christian traditions that were born on the underside of Christian supremacy, right? And both of them challenged uh, and questioned the legitimacy of the Christianity that was oppressing and persecuting them um, based on the qualifications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The birth, life, teachings, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's based on that particularity and actually living that out, right? Loving one's neighbor, um, caring for the least last and lost, right? Um, breaking from power, identifying with those who are vulnerable and and. Uh, Structurally weak, right? I think that there are ways in which we can define Christianity. If our Christianity has no praxis in its definition, um, then I guess by those criteria you can't you can't question anybody, and it's just merely you know a matter of whatever. But but if Jesus is actually true, that you can you know judge a, a, a you know the. The plant, you know, the fruit of the of the tree. Then, then all of a sudden, you've got to actually wrestle with the way that we actually live our lives in accordance with the good news of Jesus Christ and His reign on earth. So, I guess um, that would be my starting point for then suggesting that absolutely, I, I don't see how we cannot um, reject uh, certain forms of of practice. Not because I actually don't question the the. The authenticity of their hearts. I don't question their beliefs, their ardent beliefs, um, but I just question that they are actually following at least the Jesus that I know and the life that He calls me into. Um, that has nothing to do with it.
2: That's good, I, and, and I I'm, this is not um, anything different <laughs> in substance than what's just been said. But it's just to highlight the reality of the ethical dimension of the Christian faith—that there is so yes, right. We can affirm what we see in the scriptures when we when when we see in Acts, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in the uh, in your heart. God rose, uh, raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. There's a confessional aspect to the Christian faith, right? But so often, to Brandon's point, this truncated gospel that refuses to really take seriously the ethical dimension. So so the Christian faith is always going to involve confessing and repenting. So it's not going to be my perfection in this life, but there is an ethical dimension, right? And uh, just to add on to what Drew was just saying, right, When, when Jesus Says, when the king comes, Matthew 25, right? He's going to say to the sheep, you're going to separate the sheep from the goat, right? The sheep on his right and the goats on his left. He's saying to the sheep, come, you blessed of my father, right? Enter, right? Into the joy, uh, prepared for you. Why are those on the left, the goats, going to be, uh, cast off? It's not because they didn't confess that Jesus is, is Lord. He said it's because I was naked. You didn't clothe me. I was hungry. You didn't feed me. Right. That it's the ethical dimensions that there was the evidence of your faith was missing. It wasn't there. You could say something with your mouth, but there ought to be some on the ground experiential reality that demonstrates the truth of what you confess. Right. And so, so we have to be able to say, okay, look, yeah, I can't say everything that's in somebody's heart, but I can say according to what I see in the Bible and what Jesus says and 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 it's this is this is not new with Jesus. Right? It it carries through from Old Testament to New Testament. The people of Israel Why were they set apart? The Lord said in Deuteronomy, it's not because you were the greatest and mightiest of people that the Lord said his love on you, right? But... It, but here's who you are. You're a liberated people. I freed you from slavery. So your ethical life is to be one that takes care of the widow and the orphan, one that doesn't mistreat the alien and the stranger, shows hospitality. You're supposed to demonstrate an ethical life in line with being God's people. And that's always been the case, right? And so we have to be able to say, look, I, I got to call that into question if I don't see this ethical dimension actually lived out in practice.
3: Okay. I, when I do not believe that I have the, uh, the inside of the authority to decide who is, and is not a believer in history. I will point out though, that, that uh, those who are saying that the Christians, the professing Christians who, who held to, who advocated for slavery uh, throughout history, they're doing so inconsistently. Uh, one of the most Read one of the most famous sermons ever preached is "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" by Jonathan Edwards, who was a who was an advocate for slavery. He owned slaves himself, on and on at least two occasions preached messages that defended his ownership of slavery. And Charles uh, 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 George Whitfield is recognized as one of the founding fathers, a pillar of evangelicalism. And not only was he pro-slavery, he was anti-abolitionism. And so, so the thing that Irwin did in referencing the Matthew 25 text is he has made me settle in the fact that God is the one who makes the decision who is the sheep and who the goat is. But Matthew 25 has always been a convicting text for me because it is possible. For you to leave, if I apply that text properly, it is possible for you to live a life that leads people to a Christ whom you do not know. It could be that these revered theologians and evangelists of our past were preaching that they were preaching a truncated gospel message. uh, Edward, specifically, he owned slaves and saw Native Americans as inferior to himself, but he would preach the the gospel of justification, the message of justification to them. But it could be that these men, and you're not allowed to say this in any public context, which you guys have caught me on, during the evening. I'm punchy. So the <laughs> uh, it is possible for us to revere someone who is preaching a gospel and leading people to Christ, and they do not know the Christ to whom they are leading people. And and I'm going to let God be the one who sifts that out in the Matthew 25 context and to say that while I while I have no reason to question their faith. I do have reason to question their understanding of temporal kingdom ethics. That will be my reference point. And when it comes to Edwards and Whitfield specifically, that's a soapbox I've been on for a few years. So
0: there's a bunch of other questions I do want to get to here. If we get to them, we get to them. But I want to read um, one of the statements from pretty much the only person who really engaged with me on the question that is kind of sparked this entire conversation with with you all. Um, when asking the question, you know, how is Christianity for black people? Has it done anything for black people? This is a response that I got and I'll just kind of re- read chunks of it here. Um, a young lady said there's no – and I want you all to put on your pastoral hat in responding to this. Like if, if this young lady came into your office and said these things to you, and Brandon, I'm going to point you out. Don't use the word hermeneutics because most people don't know what it means, right? No. So, what would you do? You know, how would you pastorally speak to someone who came in and said, "These are my concerns," right? So, this was her response to this question. There's no singular area where the overwhelming majority of its effects have been beneficial to us on a massive or even substantial scale. Our land ownership across the globe has not increased because of Christianity. In fact, we've lost and had an insane amount of land stolen as a result of it. Our collective wealth has not increased. There is less black wealth in this country now than there was 75 years ago percentage-wise. The racial gap as it pertains pertains to wealth has doubled in recent years, and the ideas that Christianity and its current incarnation promote as well as how it is weaponized, are largely to blame for that. Christianity has not made our communities overwhelmingly food secure or prosperous or safer. It has not eradicated violence. Why are there so many in poor black neighborhoods and so few in wealthy suburbs and predominantly white areas? Do white people need the message less? Or do they already benefit from Christianity so immensely that they don't need the reminders that physical churches provide? If Christianity is truly for us, Wouldn't those churches have transformed the poor communities they are in and make a need for their presence obsolete? Black folks make deposits but never quite reap the benefits of a collective withdrawal. What would you say to this young lady sitting in your office with this very, very specific indictment against the faith and its efficacy for for black people?
1: First of all, I would wonder why would one indict Christianity for systemic problems? Um, Christianity is not a social system. Um, It's not an economic system. Uh, So it seems to be misapplied critique. Now, that doesn't mean that people didn't use the faith um, for what it. Uh, stand, you know, for, you know, it's uh, as a moral support for some of those systems. Uh, But then the onyx is not really on the faith itself, it's on the people who purported the faith and the systems and structures that were framed, uh, you know, with the faith as a moral crutch. So I, I guess part of the challenge that I have is, that I would probably question this young lady as to how did she arrive to blame the faith for something like that, that's one. And then two, how does the church uh, fix problems uh, that, she was, that she's pointing out, right? Even when we think about now, we have a charge to keep, we have a moral responsibility, but a lot of it is the way we behave, the way we prophetically critique systems that exists. Uh, but we don't have a, a Christological social system. Um, so that's, I think, it's, it's part of the challenge of the conversation.
4: Okay. Yeah, I'll jump in too. I, I think it's, um, I mean, I think the one thing that we have to remember is just the role that Black people of faith actually played also like, so forget I mean, what the one book, there's a book, um, the half has never been told. Right. I mean, one of the things that becomes very clear when you read that is it was not inevitable that slavery was going to end, Right. They were uh, full blown on expansion. Right. Um, and profits. Um, and then you couple that with a book like Vincent Harding's The Half uh the. There is a river right? and you see the embodied resistance of black people um, and certainly faith played an enormous role in terms of the resistance um, that black people had all throughout that time. Um, And in many ways, uh, people saw uh, Christianity, black faith in particular, as dangerous. I mean, that's why You know, the Bible is illegal for people to read or write eventually. Um, There's deep concern around watching the worship of black people. There's just ways in which I think um, we've sometimes accepted the narrative that that people of faith, um, our ancestors were somehow just passive and twiddling their thumbs around, waiting for the sweet by and by, when in reality, they were resisting in a whole variety of ways. And we could see that same kind of dangerous faith lived out all throughout the 20th century. At times, yes, we can say there's times in which sometimes it was just survival, but there are also these births of resistance uh, throughout. You could argue that, I mean, you look globally, most people, number one, I guess, and this is moving more into like social change theory. Like I know we have a negative view in the black community right now around the civil rights movement. Ironically, globally though, people have found that um, those very same strategies pushed even to further levels have actually helped to bring down dictators, democracies, all kinds of stuff, right? uh, and so I think that there's so much that has happened, um, not only by black faith, but certainly black, black faith playing an enormous role that I don't think gets any credit. And that many of the strategies that are disconnected from that, even to today still are standing on the shoulders of black church organizers and activists, um, who are putting their best minds together, brainstorming, dreaming up another world. And so, um, I just think the idea that um, we've not banked in anything, that nothing has come from it, is ahistorical. It's not a honest reckoning with our history. And it's not all perfect either. It's complex. Um, but there's a clear evidence of really meaningful things that have happened um, out of uh, Black Christians in particular, along with others collaborating with others um, um, for a new world.
2: Let me let me add in. This is Irwin, and uh, and agree with what uh, my brothers have just said. And uh, let me even go back and first give an amen to to Brandon, uh, to your last comment. Yes, I'm going to let Jesus be the judge of the condition of people's hearts. Um, but on this issue, for this young lady that asked the the question pastorally, I'd first want to engage and affirm her heart desire for for the flourishing of Black people. Right say, and I want to explore that and say, okay, what, what in your mind and estimation does it look like for black people in the United States of America to flourish in our, in our communities, right? And and try to dig a little deeper there um, to say that and, and to, to explore um, where she's coming from and why these things are the things that she identifies as flourishing, right? And, and also to agree, right, um, looking, uh, as our brothers have already said, at history, there's a reason why Christianity, why it was at first in the United States illegal to baptize right, enslaved Africans. There's a reason because it was an understanding that you couldn't enslave a christian uh-huh. right um, there's a reason why the christian faith was tried to be withheld from people of african descent in, in in the united states of america but but god won't be thwarted right god won't be thwarted and so he was going to have a people right uh, for himself out of uh out of the descendants uh, of 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 Africans on these shores, right, and and the, and this moved and motivated, right, um, uh, uh, black Americans who embraced the Christian faith to press for liberty and freedom. To press, so you know, I, you know, I, I'm not going to belabor this too long. But one of the examples that I give, and this has been replicated over and over again, um, is um, uh, Matthew Anderson, who. Who started Berean Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia in the 1890s and into the early 1900s? And right, and this is this is something you find black churches having done, right? He says, "I need to. We need to address the needs of the people, right?" So he doesn't just start a church, right? His wife is a uh, uh, is a medical doctor, right? They they start. Uh, they start a school and a tutoring program and um, uh, a basis for, for trying to provide uh, savings, uh, savings and loan for the people in the community, right? Seeing the needs and engaging those needs in practical ways as an outworking of their faith. So while there is legitimate critique of, of what we might find happening now, in many of the churches in our communities, and this has been alluded to, it is not the same thing as saying this is a a, a necessary, that critique and what we see now is a necessary outworking of the Christian faith among uh, Black people. Brandon?
3: So this, this young lady, on at least... In, in at least four different manifestations exist in my church. I mean, I've actually recently had a conversation uh, with a, a, at least two young ladies who would ask me questions that were very, long, very much in line with what's written here. So, my you 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 obligate us to the pastoral context, which I appreciate. Uh, my first approach is whenever I can, I concede the legitimacy of some of the concerns wherever the. Wherever the observations are legitimate, um, I concede see them. I, and I do that because I think it gives me some credibility um, when I let her know that she's not she's not crazy. She's not entirely off base. The, I think the problem with the way this question is being packaged, this series of resistance, uh, resisting comments is um, even though there may be some legitimate observations, she's overstating her case. So you have to reel it in and show how uh, the gospel can be relevant to some of the concerns that um, that she has. And I think that everyone has touched on that, that um, I specifically attended to, I believe it was Antipas who said this, that that she is placing upon the church the responsibility to to destroy um, systemic problems as though the church is the final cause. Of said systemic problems. I think that, that if, if you read history, you'll notice, specifically since in this context, the black church, the, there has been a consistent practice of putting in place policies and actions that are designed to stem the tide of systemic brokenness. But if the problem is systemic, the tide's gonna keep coming. And so her critique of the church is not so much that, that the church has done nothing is that the church has not gone upstream and stopped the tide from from coming. And I think that may be an inappropriate uh, critique. Also, it doesn't necessarily, her critique does not necessarily align with history. The very the very act, the context in which she wrote the question is the outworking of, of civil rights progress. The fact that she had that opportunity, that freedom to do so, is a fruit of civil rights access. And the fact that I own, I bought a house, Um, in northeast denver is an outworking of of progress if we did not have a fair housing act which is a movement that was spearheaded by christian leaders then i would not have had that privilege and the fact that i think everyone took for granted that we were able to vote a month ago but we have a, a a voting rights act that for which people died i i genuinely mourned the passing of John Lewis because of what he endured, a thought of him being publicly beaten so that I could vote 45 years later, 50 years later, is something I think that we downplay more often than we should. So I think that she, she, her her, her observations are not wholly unsound, but for it to have some credibility, she may be guilty of overstating her case and over blaming or inappropriately blaming the church for some systemic problems that did not come out of the church.
0: Yeah, I I affirm everything that everyone has said here. I I think if I was sitting down uh, with this young lady myself, one of the things that I would affirm in her is there is something innate put inside of you that yearns for justice. And I think you need to explore why that is and where that comes from. Not sidestepping uh, anything that you said, Brandon, uh, to your case. Sometimes people are going to walk in and you know they're overstating their case, but you can't say, hey, you're overstating your case, right? <laughs> We're generally not going to say it uh, that way because uh, what's, what's the old statement? Puppy love is real to the puppy. So regardless of whether they're overstating their case, they're coming in and they feel all those things to their core. So I'd want to explore, hey, um what, where does this sense of yearning for for – Justice come from. Where do you get this sense of, uh, this sense that injustices are happening? What makes you look at a, a crooked line and go, that line's crooked. It, it, I know what a straight line looks like. That line's crooked. What makes you look at it that way? Let's, let's explore that together. And then, yeah, extrapolate out from there. You know, hey, look, here are people who were driven Driven by the, their, their understanding of the gospel to affect change, to, to put their lives at risk so that you might have the, uh, the privilege, the, the privilege to do the things that we do. Buy a house, vote, complain online that the church isn't doing enough. Right, uh, I think that that's where where I would start, and I think it's a beautiful place to start. But um, that's when you're being pastoral to other people. So let, let's do some internal work here. I know all of you have had to have run into this at some point. Um, Basketball player LeBron James a few years ago started talking out and speaking out on on Black Lives Matter, police brutality, racism. uh, And he was told uh, by – I want to say it was a Fox News commentator. It was some news commentator. um, Just shut up and dribble. Shut up and dribble. Stick to what you're good at. Put the ball in the basket. Take your millions of dollars and shut the hell up. That's basically what what the idea was. But then we started to see it – Specifically, with with black pastors and black entertainers, I know Lecrae is a Christian rapper. He's talked about it. There's another guy, um, uh, Derek Minor, was talking about it, where they started talking out, speaking out on on race, and uh, they've been called divisive. Being divisive in the church, you're sowing discord. How do you address this response from from white counterparts? And how do you address this response from from black people? Because I believe somebody already said that they didn't like the. I think Irwin, you said they didn't, someone didn't like the name of the book "Reading While Black," right? Um. So kind of that same idea, right? So how do you deal with it when when white people say, "Hey, what you're talking about, what you're pushing for, you're being divisive"? Just preach Jesus. And how do you deal with it from from other black people in, in the church as well? And Drew, I want to throw this to you first.
4: Yeah, I mean, I would just say that that's bad analysis, right? Um, That what we're talking about, it's a bad analysis of division. um, That, you know, the people who are um, raising the questions around injustice, they're not, they've not divided anything. Um, What was divisive was, uh, Europeans going around the world and categorizing humanity into groups, structuring, uh, laddering a hierarchy, right. And then organizing society based on that. I mean, I think that that that's the fundamental division that took place. And so naming that division, um, naming its implications, exposing and unveiling um, the way that our society is still structured in such ways that it advantages some and disadvantages others um, that that's just, that's, that's the work that Christians ought to be doing, right? Unveiling, speaking truth, um, exposing that which we can't see. Um, and so it's really just a matter of analysis. But it's, I mean, I would say it's intentional, right? I mean, that these are the... Uh, reflexive kind of responses of people that want to maintain the status quo and don't want to go. I mean, you you remember Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. That's the same thing, right? He's being ex- exposed. He's called an outside agitator. He's called mm-hmm. it. Our black folk were just fine until y'all showed up. Right. And he's like, no, I- I'm exposing. In fact, I'm going to intentionally um, cause tension. He, he admits that, right? He's willing to intentionally cause tension to expose the problems that exist below, below the surface that everyone takes for granted. And so that's the work that we've got to do. And that's the same kind of work that Jesus did too, right? Um, Jesus, um, he does it multiple times, but it climaxes in him going to Jerusalem, uh, confronting the establishment, right? Um, and stirring up um, and calling them a den of robbers. He's exposing the issues that go on there. I'm sure many folks there also thought he was an outside side agitator that needs to go back to galilee and and stop stirring things up um and so that kind of division is not really divisive it's actually creating the potential for actual healing and shalom if people would actually repent uh given that moment
3: i believe everyone has uh has prophetic responsibility I don't believe that everyone has it to the same degree. I don't believe that everyone has it in the same place. But I believe that everyone has the responsibility to speak truth into a truth vac- vacuum. And to I believe we will be held accountable for being silent. It's a it's a sin of omission. We'll be held accountable for for being silent when we were supposed to be vocal. And the larger your platform, I would contend that the larger your platform, the greater um, that expectation. So um, for speaking specifically for LeBron, the idea of telling someone to shut up and dribble um, while being vocal yourself. That's the thing that troubled me about it. You have licensed yourself to speak into a situation and you silence someone else who's doing the same thing you're doing, but from the other side. Uh, I I am Southern enough to be able to to point out that a hit dog will holler. And Hmm. I think that that was more a matter of I'm not offended by your statement. I'm I'm um, I'm offended by the conviction of your statement. And as evidence of that, less than a year later, when when voices from uh, with whom she agreed from other sports outlets, would say something, she would stand as an advocate, the person who did this, would stand as an advocate for their right to speak. But when LeBron said something, the critique was not so much because of the fact he was speaking, it was what he was saying as he was speaking. And by telling him to shut up, she's obligating him to, ne- uh, to abdicate his responsibility to use his platform and speak prophetically into a situation that needed uh, a truth confrontation.
2: So, I, I um, I don't know that I nuance the response to this kind of um, accusation about divisiveness, whether I'm talking to someone who, who's white or or, or black. Um, <clears throat> but uh, he, here's here's the reality, right? And this is Drew has already said this, and so is so is Brandon. Um, that. The, the part of what we are called to into is to call out the brokenness where it exists, like to name it. Right. And to, um, and to know, right. There's a, um, there's a art piece from 2007. I, uh, a, a woman who uh, named Dr. Alyssa Yukiko Whitebrock. She's a art history professor at Covenant College and She mentioned this in a, in a, um, a message she gave a couple years ago. She, um, this piece by Doris Salcedo from 2007, the Modern Museum in, in Britain. Um, uh, Doris Salcedo, her contribution to the museum that year was she called the piece Shibboleth and she, she cracked open the floor of the museum, right? And, um, and she, Called a piece Shibboleth in a reference to Judges chapter 12, right? Where the Gileadites, they sifted out their enemies by giving this boundary test. Come in to our boundary, say the word Shibboleth. If you can't say it with the right accent, right, it becomes a death sentence. And, um, she, she, she made this piece cracking the floor of the museum. She says to call out the hidden ways in which we police our boundaries. Right to bring to the surface the hidden ways that we police our boundaries, the impossible tests we give others to maintain our own sense of comfort and security. Right, um, And Dr. Whitebrock, she said, listen, here's the deal. The cracks are already there. <laughs> Calling out the brokenness doesn't diminish Jesus's power. It magnifies it, right? Hmm. So you got to call out the brokenness. And so when... You know, whether it's a white brother, sister, or or, or a black brother, sister who's pushing back and saying you're being divisive, talking about race and talking about systemic um, injustice, right? Um, I'll I'll engage and try to point out how this rep- represents real brokenness, how it actually even aligns with their understanding of the doctrine of sin, that it's not just individual but it's structural, right? How it aligns with how they understand sin to be manifested in the world, right? And if there's, you know, uh, if I'm banging my head against the wall and it's proven that it's not going anywhere, then I just move on. Right. Gonna, casting your pearls before it's gonna, swine,
0: right? It's just, just...
2: That's right. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and just try to com- convince you, right, if you are refusing to even believe what you, the implications of what you already say you believe uh, about how sin manifests itself
1: in the world. Yeah, I, and I, I agree and support all that uh, uh, the brothers have said. Uh, the one contribution I'd like to make to this conversation is that um, ideological racism is the worst kind of racism or the colonizing of the mind. And for one, to suggest that a certain way or words, I, I did a uh, conversation parenthetically uh, with a pastor on Iowa who wanted to talk about the race problem to his church. And we did one of these um, um, Zoom uh, recordings and and he was going to show it to his congregation. And I mentioned white privilege and I explained what it means in a very inviting way. He thought it was you know appropriately explained. But his team pushed back because they they just couldn't bring themselves to to hear that. That was just a a trigger word. Yeah. A trigger phrase.
0: I like I believe everything you're saying. I need you to call it something else.
1: Yes. So this idea of controlling the conversation and determining what questions and what language one could use is what I call ideological racism. The, the, the statement from the Southern Baptist Church about critical race theory is colonizing the mind. You are not allowed to say this. Um, you, it cannot be legitimate because we have determined that it that it cannot be, you know, kneeling on the football field. No, that if you're going to protest me, let me tell you how you should protest me. You know, so that 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 kind of colonizing of the mind and behavior is deeply rooted in a racist history. So when we talk about racist society and the and the um, domination of whiteness, it's not a personal attack, right? Neither one has created this this um, debacle that we all have to live in, white nor black, but. You can be a privileged victim of something just as well as you can be an underprivileged victim of something. So in a way, this uh, this social debacle called American experience is 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 we are all victims of this society, whether we're males, we are male victims. Right. In a society that is anti-woman. So we have to have a certain kind of sensitivity to knowing that. I'm about to mess up because I'm a victim of something, though I'm a privileged victim that makes it worse because now I don't Mm. even see the victimhood. You got to point it out. But as soon as I tell you what you're allowed to point out now, I've moved to another level of ideological control. And this is what I, this is my control, my, my concern about, you know, you are not allowed to, you kind of hit it on this, Brandon, when you say, no, I can say, I have the license to tell you that you should be quiet. Well, I mean, now we've gone to another level uh, now because and then for me to say, well, let, let me see if there's a better way to say it because I don't want to offend nobody. Well, that's uh, if I'm allowed to use a from a sociological. That's that niggerization of the mind. You know, that's mm-hmm. a way of kind of making the mind subject itself to somebody else's approval of how you should express yourself. And I think that that itself is um, diabolical. I think it's. I think it's a theological moral problem uh, because it does not it does not establish an equal footing of God's creation uh, in the human discourse.
0: Yeah, I, I've got three other questions we're not going to get to tonight. I'd love to do this again, revisit it again in January or February, if you guys are willing to. But uh, let me let me. Talk a little bit on, on this as well, especially in terms of the whole, you know, the, the white, the, the white privilege thing is just kind of interesting to me. But I was on a, a podcast with, with Jennifer Kinney, uh, called Speaking of Racism back when she was hosting it. She's now, uh, she's a, she's a white anti-racism activist. She has now passed that show on to a, uh, a black, uh, black woman to be the host, which I think was an awesome handoff. But we were talking about this, uh, this phenomenon, phenomena, the problem of, of, uh white privilege, and I think it's we've kind of played around the edges of this throughout the conversation, just through the way that people look at you know, you know even look at scripture, you know, how do I interpret this? I'm looking through it through a privileged lens. I'm looking at it through a white western lens. So one of the things that I think is interesting with this, hey, you're being divisive. I think that's just a way of, again, it's almost like saying, hey, They're not really Christians. I don't – it's a dodge. I don't want to deal with what is going to clearly be a difficult conversation. I don't – I also do not want to be made aware of – my potential blind spots. I'll tell you what, my wife and I, we have conversations and she brings up some blind spots. I'll do everything to dance around having to deal with said blind spots. Don't tell me, don't make me aware. Just let me live in my ignorance. Right. And I I think when we're talking about something like white privilege and, and how uh, it affects, you know, the Christian faith specifically, I think people take this stuff very, very personally. Uh, You say I have this thing. My dad got up every day and worked his butt off for everything that we had. I never even saw him. He sacrificed everything. Or I work every day to get what I have. Don't tell me I have this thing uh, that I don't really have. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not telling you that you didn't wake up today, punching at work, put in 12 hours, come home exhausted and do that. Until you retire or until you die, right? I'm not saying you haven't worked hard for what what you've done. I'm not saying you haven't had it hard in life. What I am saying is you didn't have it hard in life because you were white. And so black people and black Christians walk through this world differently. We have the same, ultimately, spirit, we have the same spiritual need across the board. Black people, white people, Hispanic people, Asian people, no matter what, if Christianity is true, it's the same spiritual need across the board. But when we talk about that locatedness, right, Drew, like where, where you are, you're in this social situation. Um, your your needs are going to be different. The way that you experience the world and the faith that takes place in the world very, very differently than your white counterpart, your Hispanic counterpart, um, your Asian counterpart. But when we're talking about this conversation, it's predominantly talking about white versus black in terms of majority culture being the, you know, we've got the privilege of looking at Scripture a certain way. This is the right way, and everybody needs to get on board with that. Uh, and if you're not, then you're divisive. If you talk about anything other than this, you're divisive. So it's just a – I mean, there's no <laughs> – I have no solution to it. Like you said, um, I think uh, Antipas, you had said that, you know, the, the church isn't necessarily designed to uh, be a social system. It's not necessarily designed to address uh, all of these systemic issues, nor is it the fault of the church that these systemic issues exist. This is our role in these uh, in these spaces. I would, I would love to revisit this conversation with the three other questions I wanted to ask uh, and, and more sometime uh, in the new year with you guys. But I, I wanted to thank all of you for being here. Let's take a few moments real quick because all of you have uh, written books or written essays in a book. Tell us uh, about – tell us each take uh, – what well, we got two minutes. Uh, let's uh, each take um, – let's take a minute each to say the name of your book, where we can find it, uh, and, and then I'll, I'll
4: close this all out. I can begin. Uh, this is Drew Hart. Um, so what my older book is Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, came out in 2016. But my new book is called Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. And that just dropped in uh, September uh, 2020. And you can find that hard copy, paperback, Kindle, and there's even an audio book available anywhere books are sold. Excellent, awesome,
0: Erwin, Where can find you? Where where uh, where can we find your book? Sure, Irwin.
2: yeah, my book is uh, the beautiful community, unity, diversity, and the church at its best. And uh, this book it comes out of a, a heart desire to engage this con this conversation around um, race reconciliation, reunion uh, in Jesus Christ, and uh, and it comes out of uh, a trinitarian framework that the God we worship is beautiful community, and this is what it means for humanity to be human, uh, to be his image, in, in fact. And so it's published by University Press, but you, yes, the same thing, you can find it. So on Audible, audiobook, Amazon, IVP, wherever books are sold, you can find it. Awesome. Brandon, it I think came you— It uh, just came out uh, August of this year.
0: August 4th, Barack Obama's it's birthday, if you don't know. Look at that. It is. It's it's, it's the day after my birthday. That's the only reason I know (laughs) that. (laughs) Um, Brandon, I I believe you're working on it, but you have an essay coming out in a book, right? If I'm not mistaken.
3: Well, that's done. Uh, done. uh, I have, have I've come. So uh, 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 Dr. Eric Mason is, is the editor. He's the general editor of a, uh, of a uh, book entitled urban apologetics. And I had the privilege of writing the, uh, the chapter in that book entitled uh, "Philosophy and Worldviews," and I just submitted a book proposal, and it's a work on uh, a, a it's a historical examination of evangelicalism, American evangelicalism specifically. And I'm trying to see if uh, if theological retrieval, we're going back to the historical foundation of what evangelicalism is, can be a means by which we can redeem. American, the American iteration of what evangelicalism is. Awesome. I'm not allowed to give you the title because fine, uh, fine. the publisher said <laughs> we may change the title. So.
1: <laughs> all right. Uh, Antipas. Yes, um, my most recent book, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion, um, published by um, InterVarsity Press, came out this summer, and uh, it explores concrete questions from the classroom uh, to uh, the streets about the faith and seeks to try to revision christianity as a, a faithful people i have uh and i a set of academic books uh edit, edited volumes holy spirit and social justice uh one um is on um you know biblical theology and the other one is on history race and culture and uh, those books were published by seymour Press, and uh, those came out last year actually so Awesome. Again, doing too much. Doing way too much.
0: <laughs> but hey, I want to thank uh, I want to thank the four of you for, for taking time tonight for, for such a robust conversation. I'd like to revisit this again uh, next year. Hopefully I can get all four of you at the same time again. And for those of you listening, thanks so much for listening to Leading Questions with Calvin Moore. Make sure you check out our website, leadingquestionsnow.com, where you can find all of our episodes from this season, the past six seasons, uh, bios, a calendar of upcoming topics, and even suggest topics for us to talk about. If you're interested in bringing our program out to your college, University or organization, email us at hello at leadingquestionsnow.com. And we'll get back to you. Don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and of course, the Podcast Detroit app. Please leave us a review, and we will see you next week for our annual Christmas episode. Talk to you soon.